Welcome to Tech Chairs, a new podcast all about sport and technology. Because technology is the single biggest force shaping modern sport. But how did we get to this point? So in this first series, we'll try to answer that with the help of innovators and experts from all over the sports that we love so much. So whether you're a fan, work in the industry or are simply tech curious, this is the series for you. Welcome to the fifth edition of Tech Chairs from me, John Inverdale. And me, Rebecca Hopkins. Now, if we've been a little bit elitist in the last couple of editions, then today's instalment is far more relatable for the rest of us. Because hard though it may be to believe, once upon a time, there did exist a world without trainers. People used to wear gym shoes or plimsolls to play sport. Honestly, there was a time when replica kit didn't exist either. Now we wear a sports kit for everyday living and trainers are a form of currency, statement footwear, worn by those who never give a thought to actually training. And this sector is worth many billions annually. But how did that happen? To tell us are two great guests, market analyst Phelan Hill, who is head of strategy and consulting at Nielsen Sports, as well as an Olympic and world champion rower, and Sandra Halliday, UK editor-in-chief of the Fashion Network. So Phelan, let's start with you. When did what we wear on our feet or on our bodies, when did that crossover with sport happen, do you think? I think it's been like a gradual process, which has probably been driven a lot by this change from when people started following teams to actually following individuals. And I think sports such as the NBA, the NFL have really sort of like driven that culture and, you know, I think as a result of that now, everyone wants to follow their icons. Everyone wants to be like their influences, like their stars. And, you know, I think Lewis Hamilton's a prime example. You know, he's really driven that change in culture and similarly, like a lot of basketball players. Because if you watch, you know, a football match from even 30 years ago, nobody is wearing a replica shirt on the terraces. So what was the moment when suddenly somebody or who was it or which company was it that thought, hang on a moment, we're missing a trick here? You know, I think probably, you know, the likes of Nike have been at the forefront of that just in terms of their marketing strategy. So I think you probably saw, you know, 20, 30 years ago, always the tradition was let's get on a sports star and then hopefully push it. And then subsequently, since then, you've seen a change in the marketing strategy where Yes, you still endorse the sports stars, but actually at the same time, you actually started then seeing the likes of Nike actually going out to a lot of the urban streets and just find finding influencers on the ground and actually started giving them, the trainers, the same sort of like apparel. And actually you subsequently seen then a lot of this fashion apparel then actually merging into sports. So, you know, a prime example is PSG. You know, PSG are now, you know, sponsored by a sub apparel brand, which is associated with Michael Jordan. So you've seen this fusion of sport and culture driven by some of the big brands like Nike, Adidas. And that's been become really, really apparent in like the last five to 10 years. But it's fascinating the way that shifts happen, but also for these guys. I mean, it's huge business for them. I've read some crazy statistics, but you probably know those better than those as to what that actual market value is. I mean, the 
total value of like the ecosystem i i we've seen numbers you know which sort of like quotes it towards sort of like north of 500 billion in value across like the whole sector now obviously that breaks down to you know wearables also just fashion apparel etc but now it's very much a big booming business for sure yeah, no, completely. I mean, I can imagine, well, you've trained at the elite level, but now even a ho- hobby runner has a myriad of incredible tech open to them. How has that market unfolded? Because certainly since we've been in it over the last decade, it's changed exponentially. I think even, you, you don't even know last decade, I, th- I think the last five years, we've just seen huge, huge growth in it. I think, you know, if you, if you just look at the tech wearable sector i think that's somewhere worth now in the region of about 58 billion and you know if you start looking at growth rates it's been growing at over 20 percent per year now which is an insane rate of growth and you think you know you just look back five years ago that market you know people were talking about it being worth only about 18 billion and i think probably you know now we're forecasting by about 2027 it's going to be worth like nearly 100 billion alone so huge growth in 10 years going from about 20 to 100 billion in value you know that's been driven a lot by you know internet adoption smartphones etc it's so accessible for everyone now and everyone loves having data on their own performance this is more of an existential question in a, in a, in a way because talking about you know whether it's michael jordan or whoever it might be it's hard to take our minds back to 50 years ago or whatever, but there were big stars. If you specifically focus on football, you know, Jimmy Greaves, George Best, Bobby Charlton, these were huge figures in British sport and in British society. And yet nobody within the world around them saw the possibility of marketing them on in the way that we now assume are, is just the norm for people who are not even who are barely fit to least lace their boots so it's so it's so much of it is a society thing but it's also the way that we think differently as well about the product isn't it yeah totally but you know and you you mentioned the whole sort of like globalization aspect that's been a really big part of it so you know you think back to those superstars jimmy grease etc in those days you had very much like local fandom and then all of a sudden that started emerging to sort of like national fandom and everyone started following it. And then that evolved further into almost like global fandom. So people around the globe started knowing about these. And now what we're seeing further is almost an evolution of that where you've got this global fandom, but now it's looking for like connected global fandom. So not only can you see these stars, but actually even if you're someone in India or China, there are ways of connecting with them, you know, be it through social media, be it even through much more engaging platforms. So because of that, that's really like influence now how you can market, because just with the single person, you can just touch the globe. And that's something which you could just never do. So like 40, 50 years ago. That's fascinating because, as you say, that changes the conversation because I I read somewhere that the fastest growing sport in India is the English Premier League. And just having those different countries able to tap in to sports that weren't culturally theirs obviously creates a huge opportunity to growth. And maybe that's where the figures that you're talking from, that's where the growth will come, perhaps? 
Well, definitely. You know, markets such as China, India, obviously huge scale. But, you know, that's ultimately where the opportunity is. And you can see in a way like sports rights holders recognizing that, you know, you look at football, for example. Now, pre-season tours are dominated with trips to Asia, to North America. You see Formula One now, the footprint is very much a global footprint because they actually recognize the opportunity there now. They recognize the attraction. And when it comes to elements such as technology in a way, the biggest areas of adoption of like, you know, sports tech wearables is very much sort of like the Chinese market in a way. That's interesting because, as you say, if you dial back a few years, every preseason seemed to be going to Asia somewhere. Now it seems to be more going into North America, which is obviously a much more crowded marketplace in terms of sport. Where do you think that the overriding interest is or is it both equally? It's an interesting one. You you look at Asian markets for probably scale, but in terms of actual value, then you would probably look at so like the North American market. So, you know, people always have an obsession with something called ARPU, which is your average revenue per user. When you start talking at, you know, like spend, so in the US, the average spend on to like sports technology, sports fitness apparel is nearly over like $300. Whereas obviously in somewhere like China, it's about $140, $150. So, you know, you've got two contrasts. You go to North America, there's a lot of money there. You go to Asia, you've got a lot of scale. So opportunities in both, but different objectives in a way. That's really fascinating. So, feeling throughout this whole series, we're asking people, uh, they may be very random, they may be very left field, they may be very mainstream, I don't know, but to come up with some technological invention or device in the history of sport that you think has been the greatest of all time. So, would you like to throw your hat in the ring here? <laughs> I'm not sure if it's the greatest innovation in the world, but I certainly think it's one of the most influential. And so, I'm going to say VAR. Ooh. Which is, which is, you know, I, it will have a lot of critics, but you know, ultimately, if you think of football as like a global game, everyone talks about it. It has a huge influence now on the game. I actually couldn't imagine not watching football without some comments around Vara either at half time or full time. So, whilst people might challenge whether it's it, it's a it's a great innovation it's certainly something which has hugely impacted the world of sports in the last few years oh feeling you're a brave man putting that <laughs> forward and i'm fascinated to see how the listeners react to that Phelan, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for talking to us because we're going to turn now to the fashion side of all this with Sandra Halliday, who's the UK editor-in-chief of the Fashion Network. And Sandra, I do recall the time when it seemed to me anyway that sport and fashion were mutually exclusive. So when did that change? I don't think they were as mutually exclusive as we might now think. I mean, if you look back, you can think of the Fred Perry shirt or... I don't know if you remember back in the 1980s, there were news stories about women doing this shocking thing where they'd wear their trainers to work and then change into their high heels when they got into their offices. So the whole sport thing was invading the fashion world back then. 
I think what's happened now, it's a bit like coastal erosion. It can happen over a period of years, but you only hear about it in the news when a house falls into the sea. And I think that's what's happening with sport now. The house has fallen into the sea, but in a much more positive way. It's suddenly taken over and it's flipped from the point of view that whereas sport used to be something that would be brought into fashion, now it's dominating fashion in many ways. And there are many, many consumers out there who basically wear athleisure and that's it. They wouldn't recognise a suit and tie or a pair of high heel shoes if they came across them. So I think, you know, we have to move away from the idea of thinking this is something very new. That's a great analogy about the coastal erosion as well. It really is. So who who are the companies and maybe more recently the individuals who've been driving this? Goodness, I suppose you could argue, again, mentioning Fred Perry, there's a perfect example there, but obviously the big guys like Nike and Adidas have been massive movers in this whole area. However, they haven't had the world to themselves and fashion brands have been getting involved in sport a lot more. Whether that's just kind of taking on sporty details in their collections. And I can remember back when I used to work for a trend forecasting service called WGSN back in the early 2000s, we used to talk a lot about sport lux. And that basically was kind of luxury fashion with a bit of sport element in it. It might be a a sweatshirt with some beading on it or something made out of neoprene. So it's been coming from both sides. It's been coming from the the fashion designers who themselves are realising that they themselves and their clients are much more interested in comfort clothing now, as well as coming from the sports brands who are realising that this is happening. I've written a couple of news stories only this week, and one of them was yesterday where a big luxury online retailer called Farfetch. It owns a business called New Guards Group, which has got a lot of very edgy labels. And based on the data it's been seeing, it's just launched an activewear line. And it said that this activewear line basically is a complete response to what consumers are doing. Consumers are asking for more active clothing. And the data is telling them that this is a huge area with massive potential. So it's coming from all sides. It's coming from designers, it's coming from brands, and it's coming from consumers. And it's all it's all being combined now in this huge data set that where labels are looking and going, wow, we need to be doing this. And with the collaborations that are coming through, say, the likes of Adidas and Stella McCartney, and there are countless others, to what degree do these really change the needle, either in fashion or, or, or sport? Or, or are they just marketing initiatives? How meaningful are they? There's an element of it being a marketing initiative. Let's face it, it's you launch a new collaboration, it's a big news story, and it focuses attention on the brand. However, they are quite important in that they, for luxury brands, and even for mass market fashion brands, they highlight how they're operating in the sports sector and they're not just about, um, you know, kind of more formal fashion. And for sports brands, they also maybe reach out to a consumer who they wouldn't necessarily reach before by saying, hey, we're not just about, you know, running shoes and leggings. You can look fashionable. 
And it's interesting that Adidas only a few weeks ago announced a new range, which I think is called Adidas Sportswear. And it's alongside Adidas Originals and the main Adidas performance. It's They see it as their third pillar, which is a it's, it's something they're reaching out to young consumers with. And it's basically a, a sports brand, but one that you wear for every day. And it's fronted by Jenna Ortega, who's the star of uh, who's Wednesday Adams. So it's very much geared towards that Gen Z consumer group. And it's basically targeting people who see sports clothing as just normal. You know, this is what we wear. And we may not necessarily be going running or doing yoga or playing tennis, but we're wearing, you know, track pants. We're wearing kind of sports tops trainers i mean let's face it i'm sure you've stood on a train and looked down at the floor and noticed that everybody is wearing trainers it's just normal now when you think about it people can mock the fashion industry but if you think about any era in the world you tend to think of it in terms of the way we looked and the way we look now is sporty and that reflects the fact that every aspect of our lives has become more casual you know, we no longer refer to people in such formal ways. We no longer are so formal in our workplaces. And that's just reflected in what we wear. And sports are stepped up to the mark there. It's so interesting that we become more and more identified by the fact that we wear sports clothing, even though fewer and fewer of us are actually playing sport. It's a very interesting <laughs> juxtaposition. <that's> still... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but with all these, all of these pieces, they're very much um, marketed as gym to street so the fact is we may be doing less sport but if we have the urge to go out and run or do or lift a weight at least we can in the clothes that we're wearing Sandra that was great thank you so much Sandra Halliday UK Editor-in-Chief of Fashion Network and it's obviously been alluded to several times during the course of this chat but visibility on television and elsewhere has been a key element in promoting sportswear and getting product to the widest possible audience and it's to broadcasting that we turn next Yes Is technology driving fans who are driving broadcast or is media drawing on technology and shaping fans' tastes Who is the tail and who is the dog? We'll find out See you next time Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode of Tech Chairs. We hope you found it informative, thought-provoking, entertaining. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to stay up to date with all things sport tech, be sure to subscribe. You can follow us on Apple, Spotify and all good podcast channels. And if you have any feedback, suggestions or just want to say hello, contact us on Twitter at Sport Tech Group, LinkedIn, the STA Group or by email techchairs at sportstechgroup.org. Don't forget, if you're posting on social, our hashtags are techchairs and sportstechgoat.